WIOX is supported by the generosity of our listeners and the following underwriters. Rockland Cider Works Upstate in Gilboa, an agritourism cidery with vacation rentals on a sprawling former dairy farm. Gluten-free hard cider made from 100% New York State apples. New York State produced beer, wine, and spirits. Rockland Cider Works Upstate on Stryker Road in Gilboa. RocklandCiderWorks.com Andy's Guitar Repair in Margaretville, specializing in fretted instruments, structural repairs, setups, fretwork, electronics, and custom-wound pickups. Andy's Guitar Repair, by appointment only, by text or phone call, 845-384-2970. 845-384-2970. Andy'sGuitarRepair.com Ryle Sheridan Architects with offices in New York City and Delaware County focusing on environmentally friendly and sustainable design for residential, commercial, and institutional clients. Creating ultra-efficient, high-design projects, new construction additions and renovations from concept to completion, including contractor selection and construction supervision. Ryle Sheridan Architects, 646-809-4343, or email info at rylesheridan.com, R-Y-A-L-L, Sheridan.com. This is Dan O'Connell, host of Monday Morning Music on WIOX Roxbury. I also manage underwriting for WIOX, and as an underwriter supporting WIOX, I'm here to let you know that as a licensed New York State real estate salesperson, I help people sell their homes in Margaretville, Stamford, Hobart, Delhi, Bovina, Andes, Fleischmann's, Pine Hill, Hawkettsville, Roxbury, and neighboring communities. Information on selling your home at 646-263-8677. 646 646- Two six three eight six seven seven. Okay, 
You are listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM, on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones, and also with the Radio Garden phone app. This is From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and Zane. Zane, how's it going? Good. Good, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm all right. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Uh, I've opened up some uh, sugar maple trees where I'm staying. Uh, Hopefully those will grow more this year and be big enough to tap one day. Um, Other things I've been seeing, I've been seeing a lot of birds lately, a lot of bird activity, a lot of rabbits around. Um, see the buds of honeysuckle they're popping already and the crocuses are out i like to see them early spring (laughs) yeah a lot of my apple trees are still in silver tip some of the pears are in green tip starting to come out but um i gave them a little spray the other day of some dormant oil and uh copper but uh spring is coming and the lows are looking uh, pretty much all above freezing, so I uh, can't complain about this winter. We've been working hard pruning apple trees since January 2nd, just about every day until now, and uh, it's been a, it's been a decent winter. We only got a few really cold days and negative temperatures, so for working outside, I can't complain that much. Yeah, yeah, it's been a pretty warm winter. Winter, um, muddy. You know, the ground never really froze. Um, so sometimes you were pruning around a lot of mud. Yeah. It's true. I, I only burned 1.75 cords. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's it's just amazing. When When's the last time in, in memory you think you did that? Never. 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 Yeah. No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that's the least amount I've ever burned. You know, I only have a, a you know, a little ranch house, but, um, so it helps to have a smaller house, but, uh. I've had the same house too since 2012, so this was the least amount I've, I've I've burned. But tonight's topic is all about black locust with Cornell Cooperative Extension's Brett Chedzoy. He is the senior resource educator in agriculture and natural resources with Cornell Cooperative Extension Schuyler County, the regional director for CCE Master Forest Owner Volunteer Program. He's the forest manager for Cornell's Arnott Teaching and Research Forest. He's a Schuyler County native with 30 years of professional experience in forestry and farming. He's also the owner of Angus Glen Farm, which is an innovative silvopasture operation that combines ranching and forestry to offer a more sustainable method of raising livestock. And let me see if I can get him on. Brett, are you there? I am here. Good evening, gentlemen. All right. Thank you for taking the time and uh, coming on from the forest. How are you? This is exciting to be on a radio show dedicated to forestry. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we've been doing it since 2010, and, and uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. We get to talk to uh, all, all sorts of people like yourself. So where are you calling that's, from? That's amazing. So I'm home this evening up here in Watkins Glen, New York. And uh, tonight is a busy evening because we also have a webinar later this evening um, that we're doing, it's the New York Forest Owners Association with Audubon, New York, and we have a, a person, Katie, from the National Wild Turkey Federation, but that's 
later this evening. I have Peter Smolage, our other Cornell Forester, on backup, though, handling all that. So we can sit here and enjoy ourselves for the next hour and talk about locusts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into that, what, what got you into all this stuff, Brett? Forestry or all the other stuff? All of the above, <laughs> A and B. <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> uh, so I grew up loving to be outdoors, loving to be in the woods with my dad, hunting and working. We had a small horse farm, and about halfway through high school where you wake up one of those mornings and ask yourself, you know, what do I see myself doing the rest of my life? I, I'm not sure that kids think of, think of that question in high school anymore. It might be halfway through college, but, um, you know, I remember at a fairly young age thinking, wow, if I could just pick a job where I could be outdoors every day, that would be a, a dream come true for me. So I headed off to forestry school and 1987, and it took me about halfway through college to really fully understand what a forester did, but once I started to figure it out, I realized I had chosen well. Did you go, where, where did you go, uh, SUNY ESF? So, yep, so I was pre-enrolled at SUNY ESF, and back in those days, ESF was still what they called a 2 plus 2 school, where you had to take your first two years somewhere else, so I chose the cheap, easy route and went to Cornell to the natural resources program for my first two years. Um, it, it wasn't a random choice. My my parents had uh, some college housing over there, and I my mom used to work at Cornell, so I was just kind of intrigued by the, the college just over the hill from Watkins, and I went there and enjoyed myself for a couple of years, but didn't take long to realize that Cornell, even though it was, I believe, officially the first forestry school in the U.S., uh, they were no longer a forestry school. And so I took everything I could that seemed related to forestry, including maple syrup production and an intro to forestry class. But after a couple of years, then I realized I needed to move on and really ramp things up at the at what I think is the best forestry school in the country at ESF. Oh, I wonder if Cornell regrets that decision, huh? <laughs> like well, getting, with, Peter, you know. with Peter Smolich there for the past 20 years and some other really good faculty, I think that students are getting a good dose of natural resources that maybe weren't there 30-some years ago when I was a student, but... Uh, I'm not even sure what a true forestry degree looks like anymore. It's, I'm sure changed from the time, you know, we were there back in the day. Fair enough. So you consider yourself a stumpy then? I am a true stumpy. <laughs> I proudly introduce myself as a stumpy and Peter Smolich too. Um, it's funny because we're, we're the Cornell foresters now, but we are in a joint venture project with SUNY SF, and some of them are Cornell graduates, so there's been this <laughs> funny cross-pollination back and forth, but it's really a pleasure to work with the ESF folks closely. Hmm. So, Black Locust, um, can you describe this tree to, the, to someone who's not familiar with it? 
Well, it's hard to picture somebody. I shouldn't say that. It might be offensive. It's hard to picture somebody who hasn't seen a black locust tree. And if you see one, especially when it's in full flower, you would never forget it. So black locust, though, is certainly a different-looking tree, sometimes sort of a scrubby-looking little tree. And there's three distinct forms from ones that grow very straight to ones that grow more like bonsai-type shape trees. We can go back and talk about that later. Um, some of the things that stand out for me about locust is it has a uh, compound leaf, and so it has this lovely lacy kind of foliage. The, the bark is rather coarse and has deep furrows and I mentioned the flowers, it's in the pea family, so it has a white, drooping, very fragrant flower that usually, at least in this area, appears around the 1st of June. So it's one of the, um, you know, certainly not one of the earliest trees to flower in the woods, but it's one of the earliest trees that flowers that has a truly noticeable flower. Gets pretty tall, no? So locust is at the very top of the list for sun-loving species. And anytime it's growing with competition, it's going to shoot for the sky. And it can become a tall tree. I remember in the, back in the mid-'90s, I worked as a consulting forester over in the southern New England area, and we managed some properties there that, we're on really high-quality growing sites, um, kind of true cove sites. And there, uh, the locusts would have to compete with other very tall-growing species like tulip poplar and red oak. And it would, um, it would successfully compete in what I thought of as, like, mature or, uh, you know, very old stands. And uh, on some of those sites, you would find groves of locust of the very straight varieties and just magnificent trees, trees that were probably two feet in diameter and well over 100 feet tall and just as straight as candlesticks. You guys, oh, go ahead, Zane. Uh, what kind of sites does it prefer, and uh, kind of what are its limitations? Where don't you find it? Yeah, good question, Zane. Um, so a locust is, when you look up the, the silvics of almost any tree species, it'll always say it does best on a, on a good site or a well-drained site, and that's particularly true of locust. Locust does not like wet feet. It can grow on relatively heavy soils. It can grow on shallow, rocky soils, but it won't tolerate seasonal flooding, and it won't tolerate a low, uh, low, heavy, springy soil like where you might expect to find ash or other species like hemlock that can at least tolerate those sites. Locust, uh, back when we started planting it on our farm in the late 1980s, 
I knew it didn't like wet sites, but I wasn't my eye wasn't as experienced back then to really pick out the small drainages and any place where we planned it where there would be standing water this time of the year, it has pretty much died out in those locations. So uh, to directly answer your question, it likes um, it likes well-drained soils, and the better the growing site, the better it can do. But one of the uh, we can talk about this in, in more depth here later on. Uh, black locust, as many people have probably heard, was listed as a restricted species in New York State, and that's because it has an uncanny ability to thrive in very sandy soils. So it can become problematic in sites like the Pine Barrens around Albany. Okay, so I mean, like, what is, uh, how do they define the DC Department of Environmental Conservation restricted? Yeah, so there's two categories on their invasive plants list, uh, prohibited and restricted. Uh, I might be confusing restricted with regulated, but now it's restricted. So prohibited plant out means it's a bad plant. You shouldn't possess it. You should probably try to eradicate it if it's found on your property. So think of something like giant hogweed is a prohibited plant. You're certainly not supposed to propagate it, sell it, spread it around, give seedlings to your friends. The regulated species, on the other hand, are species that um, in many cases are widely naturalized across the state, and that's certainly the case of black locust. Uh, it's, it was a tree that was planted extensively by people that settled this area um, 150, 200 years ago because they recognized it as a extremely durable and useful wood. So it's pretty hard to think of a area within New York State today where black locust has not been naturalized and growing on its own for probably a century or more. But nonetheless, there are areas, sensitive areas, again, like these special ecosystems like the Pine Barrens, which exist a little bit around Albany, a little bit on Long Island, although uh, I think there's a general consensus that black locusts may have been a a native species to, to Long Island because there was a famous variety discovered there by the early settlers called shipmass locust, which is um, not only a very, like the name implies, a very, very, very straight stemmed variety of black locust, but to my knowledge, it's also a variety that does not flower or rarely flowers, meaning that it it's, can only really be um, spread and propagated vegetatively, meaning through the root system. And, and locust has uh, an excellent ability to spread through its root system. If if black, if black locust isn't native to New York, where where is it? I mean, where does its range begin, I guess, then? 
it's considered a native of the Appalachian Range, and the Appalachian Range extends into New York State. Yeah. But the way that, uh, and, and this is Peter Smollage's um, anecdote, but the early botanists back in the 1600s, 1700s, they went around and made records of what tree species they saw and, and what plant species and species of fauna as well. And just because it doesn't appear in those early records doesn't mean it wasn't necessarily there. Um, it's not like people are out there scouring the uh, tall ridges of the southern tier sites where it could have competed with the, the tall hardwood forest of southern New York. And Sure, and I mean, I mean, okay. Let's assume it's abundant, isn't that? I mean, in my opinion, that's really due to succession, right? I mean, right. this this tree so doesn't stick point, around. Yeah, right. So at some point, if a plant has been naturalized for a long period of time, where do you draw the line between it? It it occurred historically versus it's it's been here forever, and uh, I think it's all this know as woodland owners when you plant trees that don't really belong here nature has a way of correcting that usually within a few decades some pest comes along or some extreme weather event like a cold snap and those trees that maybe don't grow within hundreds of miles of this area don't survive Uh, and, and that was certainly the case with many of the non-native tree species we plant on our farm back around the same same time frame but locust is been here a long time and i'm sure it's always going to be a significant portion of our forest landscape if you're just tuning in you're listening to from the forest tonight's topic is all about black locust with cornell cooperative extensions brett chedzoy brett Let's get into why you like this tree so much. I mean, you're all about black locust. In fact, I have found you quoting, black locust is just about the perfect tree for converting open pasture into silver pastures. Is that, is that correct? Is that accurate? I, I, I must agree with that statement. <laughs> so creating silver pasture with black locust. Um, yeah, let's go over some of your notable qualities I found you uh, – saying online i thought it was pretty pretty interesting yeah be careful what you say online right <laughs> it's, there, it's there forever it's there forever <laughs> yeah this show will be uploaded by the way the internet so just so you oh, know no. <laughs> <laughs> so did you always when you started your silvo pastor did you always uh thought you would use black locust or you just discover over time that this was you know a really unique tree a really unique plant that uh, works really well. Yeah, so the extent of planting a black locust on our farm was really kind of a total mistake. Back when I was starting out my forestry school career in the 1980s, when when you're a freshman in college, you think you know everything. And I remember my forest advisor, John, or my professor advisor, John Kelly, who was an old Vermont forester, giving me all the caveats about good tree planting, like do your site preparation and, you know, right tree for the right site and all that. And I thought that I had a much better master plan in my mind. And the black locust was not 
our intended target initially. So black locust was planted as a what we call a nurse crop for planting other hardwoods, particularly black walnut. And I had these elaborate designs. I, I used to believe that just because you sketch something out on the paper that you're going to plant your rows at some spacing and a certain orientation of rows that all the trees that are on your piece of paper are going to somehow survive and grow into the big, beautiful saw timber trees that you thought they would when you're 18 or 19 years old. So we had these planting designs. I, should, I, I shouldn't say we because I, I can't blame my parents for this. Um, I should, so I had these designs where we were going to plant walnut trees on roughly the final mature saw timber spacings of, I forget if it was, I think it was 30 by 30 feet. And, but on six foot spacings in between, we were planting black locusts. So we were planting far more black locusts than we did walnuts. And I could write the book on everything to do wrong with tree planting over my forestry career, but one of the earliest in probably most regrettable mistakes was planting all these different hardwoods directly into hay fields. And when I was looking at those hay fields over the winter, dreaming up my schemes, uh, even when the snow wasn't there, all I could see were like these little benign looking brown grass plants. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, how bad could that possibly be for competing with my tree seedlings, so we, it, it came April and the seedlings arrived and we put them in the ground and then I disappeared for another month to go back to school and finish up the semester and finish up all the exams and I came home in mid-May and those little brown hay fields that we were planting seedlings in in April were now basically chest-high stands of mature hay and you couldn't find the seedlings anywhere. So the, the walnut trees, it turns out, don't like, it, it like pretty much all other hardwood species, do not like that kind of intense competition from herbaceous plants. But black locust is probably the closest thing that we have to a hardwood species that acts like a softwood species. And it's a very tough pioneer plant that can survive in those field situations or those meadow-type environments better than most hardwoods can. So the, the locust, long story short, the locust ended up doing better than the walnuts and the birch and some of the other oaks and things that we interplanted. And we eventually got things under control and many of the trees ultimately survived, but we lost a lot of initial growth with the other hardwood species, whereas the locust kind of, it, it struggled to get started too, but it took off a lot faster. And so we ended up having these beautiful plantations that look like mostly black locust plantations. And uh, about a dozen years later, we looked around the old dairy farm when, when I moved back with a young family and realized that we were going to become a grazing farm. That was like in 2002. And 
So I looked at all these locust trees and realized, hey, you know, I've got free fence posts here. So we, we went about thinning the, the locust plantations, and I that's where I really started to develop a, a much better um, appreciation for this particular species and all, all the special attributes that it has. I, I, like, I like that uh, analogy comparing it to a softwood. So, I mean... You know, softwoods are usually so much easier to plant and, and whatnot, um, especially in big forest operations. But locusts just, they must have some really vigorous roots to compete with that hayfield, no? I think it's, so locusts is what we, again, call a pioneer species. And pioneer species are ones that have uh, adaptive mechanisms to come in on disturbed sites or be the first trees to arrive in the early stages of succession. And white pine would be another good example um, in the Catskill area, birch, aspen. You, like you're not going to see beech and hemlock and sugar maple be the first arrivers, at least not in an old farm field and, and actually be able to compete and survive. But locust um, is certainly one of those trees that if if there's a nearby seed source or you plant the trees, they have a better than average chance of surviving. And it like all new trees, it takes them maybe a few growing seasons to really get their roots established. And there's a lot of competition going on beneath the ground with all the grasses and forbs and weeds and maybe other brushy plants that are growing there. Once their roots are established, though, they they can grow extremely fast. So you said you uh, harvested some of those trees in 2002 because uh, you knew yep. you wanted to make, uh, what, uh, paddocks for cattle? Yeah, so we, we didn't have any existing fences on the farm at the time. The farm had been pretty much just cropped. All the old barbed wire fences were in uh, disrepair. And from the mid-'80s until about 2003, when we started really fencing things in again, the, uh, the farm was being leased to another dairy farm. And it took us you know, what we moved back in 2002. We wanted to do something on this family farm that could seem fun and profitable, and we weren't going to continue to be dairy farmers. We weren't going to be row crop farmers. This is kind of hilly, rough country up here in the southern Finger Lakes, um, not unlike a lot of parts of the Catskills. So grazing seemed to be the best fit, and... Um, when I say we moved back here, we moved back here from Argentina. My wife, Maria, is an Argentine. And when you marry an Argentine, you have to raise your own beef because <laughs> they'll eat you out of house and home. Um, so in our, between Maria and our, our three young children, we, we knew we needed to kind of raise what we ate and so it started out as something fun where we had some sheep and some goats and a few cows. And the few cows today have grown into 100 cows. And so we're a large cow-calf operation. 
we graze about 500 acres. Hmm. We make hay on another 400 acres. And of the 500 acres of pasture, currently about half of that is in some form of civil pasture. And about uh, not not quite half of that civil pasture are from trees that we have planted, many of them locusts. Well, how would you define silvopasture? What makes it silvopasture to you? So silvopasture is this balance between growing trees and forages on the same land. And if you grow too many trees, you don't have enough sunlight to grow productive and good quality forages. Uh, but by adding trees in there, you're um, so you can add trees and, and think of it as adding as many trees as you would normally have growing on in a well-thin woodlot. So the the beautiful thing about civil pastures is that we can have the the particular site pretty much fully stocked with good quality trees. What in in agroforestry we call functional trees. Or, or trees that are there for multiple purposes, but by removing the surplus of trees, which in our woodlots would be, think of them as the the firewood quality or the pulpwood quality trees, Those it's like weeding the garden. So if you find the tomato plants and grow just your tomato plants, but you remove all the weeds around the tomato plants, um, of course, now more sunlight is reaching the soil surface and more weeds will continue to grow. But by putting livestock into the mix, the livestock become the workforce that keep that uh, sun, sunlight-rich growing site from just blowing back up into unwanted plants. Uh, could be invasive shrubs. It could be things like beach brush, native problematic plants right. so the the livestock have a purpose there um not le- not least of which is to for vegetation management but they're also uh um there's there's many other important reasons of course that we we could and should graze livestock uh, not least of which it's a it's a revenue stream for our farm just one last question on that is um like what's the spacing between trees? It must be quite a bit if there's grass, but I don't know. Yeah, so spacing is uh, in in a mature civil pasture, the trees would probably be fifty feet apart on average. Um, it, you know, it's it's probably more useful to express it in terms of stocking, and we measure stocking in forestry using a, a term called basal area per acre. I'm sure you've discussed this many times on your show. And we think of a well-thin woods as having a stocking of around 60 to 70 square feet of basal area per acre. And that's pretty much the target we're aiming for with civil pastures as well. Hmm. Okay. I didn't know that. So um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is all about black locusts with Cornell Cooperative Extension's Brett Chedzoy. So, Brett, what, what other uh, notable qualities about black locust um, do you find? I don't think a lot of people realize that it is a legume. You know, we think of pea plants and stuff like being like, you know, little plants. Yeah, it, it may may very well be the 
largest plant in the legume family. I, I've never read anything to verify that, but I'm trying to think of there, there are many different tree species and genuses that are in the legume family, but uh, I, many are um, would be like in the Casea family. But, uh, there's eight Acacias and Caseas. Um, Argentina has many species in those two genuses, but they're think of them as. Uh, mesquite-like trees. Um, they look more like apple trees than they do tall forest trees. So some of the really awesome qualities of locusts, though, that make it, you know, going back to what you said there that apparently I said once upon a time, makes, makes it the perfect tree, not just for any forestry project, but agroforestry as well, is that it is a legume, meaning that it can uh, help take nitrogen from the atmosphere. Of course, nitrogen, well, nitrous oxide is a greenhouse gas, so uh, presumably it's sequestering nitrogen from the atmosphere, making it available to other plants, so it's basically free fertilizer. It's uh, uh, the, the flowers are considered um, to be high-quality fodder for many pollinators, it's it's a tree that has a uh, very porous and low density canopy, meaning it lets a lot of sunlight come through. So, in addition to that being a, a very desirable quality for silvo pastures, where you want more sunlight to reach the ground so you can grow more forages, it's also a tree that is considered excellent for naturalizing areas. So if you're trying to turn the old farm field that's pretty much wants to grow multiflora rows and other invasive shrubs back in the forest, the tree that I would start with almost 10 times out of 10, assuming it's a, it's a good enough growing site, in other words, not, not a low, wet, heavy soil, would be locust because Many of the native tree species and other forest plants should be able to become established under the light shade and not just become established but continue to grow well. Um, the single most important quality or I think uh, desirable quality of locust though is its lumber and it's at the very top of the chart for uh, firewood in, in terms of the BTUs that it produces per cord, and it's by far our most durable. I'm going to call it a, a native species, uh, but we have no other tree species. Even even in the days of chestnut, chestnut is a very durable wood, but didn't have the ability to be rot resistant when placed in the soil, like a post would be or a uh, a pole like locust does. How, so, just how durable and, and is it? I mean, how durable? So, yeah, in your experience, like some of these fence posts. Yeah, we have old barbed wire fences here on the farm that are many of the posts are still upright, and, you, and keeping in mind that these were pounded in with a maul, 
decades and decades ago. So the neighbor in the yellow house remembers putting those. He's uh, late fifties, almost. Yeah, so he he helped put those posts in almost fifty years ago. And some of those posts are not some, probably more than half of those posts are still standing upright on their own. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Eastern Red Cedar's not not too shabby, but Locust always seems to be the best reputation-wise. Yeah, the problem with cedar is it it takes a tree that's probably 50 years old or more to have enough heartwood to really have that durability. Uh, Locusts, we can be growing a sufficiently sized fence post that's going to be durable for probably at least 25 to 30 years and as little as 12 to 15 years. Wow, that fast. That's pretty amazing. That's assuming assuming you do it the right way, not the wrong way like I did with a lot of tree planting. Yeah, hey, I've done it myself with some tree planting I did by my house. I learned a lot about what not to do. Um, what about this deworming thing? You, I'm not even going to attempt to say this word. and uh, I guess I will. Anthelmentic? What, what is this? Anthelmentic. Uh, so I think what you're talking about, Ryan, is that locust can be a medicinal plant for livestock. Uh, locust, like oaks, has the, the foliage of locust has a significant content of what are called condensed tannins, and condensed tannins are a natural dewormer for internal parasites, Hmm. and internal parasites are a major challenge for grazing animals, particularly smaller grazing animals like sheep and goats, cattle, uh, larger animals, even horses can tolerate internal parasites more through their own immune systems. But the, but parasites are problematic in all grazing animals. So the condensed tannins, basically these naturally occurring plant compounds in the foliage can help reduce the internal parasite loads. In fact, they do. It's, it's been documented. So our small, uh, small ruminant specialist, Tatiana Stanton at Cornell, she's She's a big fan of locusts, too. So those are the leaves. Um, I know locusts also have kind of phytotoxins in their inner bark. Is that ever a concern for you, or has it ever been an issue on your farm? Sure. The, all the literature will say that black locust is potentially toxic to livestock, and I think Somebody 100 years ago published something probably in the early USDA Bolton making that statement, and everybody has basically copied it since then. Mm. (laughs) uh, But that said, many plants contain, in in many forage plants for that matter, uh, in many plants that you would find abundantly in pasture systems contain potentially toxic compounds. So... I always answer this question a little bit cautiously because I don't want to say there's nothing to worry about uh, business as usual. It, it Certainly animals that are not acclimated to uh, a, a new plant, like if you turn your hobby horses or your 
pet alpacas out into the the wilderness and they go over there and gorge themselves on black locust leaves, they could make themselves sick and mm. probably animals have died because somebody once upon a time felt that was a concern and put it in there. But that said, um, our animals relish locust foliage and uh, it's important to keep in mind though that our animals are in a grazing environment year round. Even even in the winter they don't come off pasture. They're out there bale grazing during the winter months. So the animals are not like sitting in a muddy barnyard and then we turn them out um, early May and they go out there and start binge eating tree foliage. Hmm. Okay, I see. Um, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is all about black locusts with Cornell Cooperative Extension's Brett Chedzoy. Brett, we're going to take a break, but um, after the break, I got some questions about uh, you know, black locusts as a timber crop and setting up a plantation. Excellent. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads, take me home.
did you know that when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers played out of country last year in Germany and the game ended, the German fans were heard singing that song. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's oh, a beautiful thing. <laughs> in Germany. So there you go. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday. Tonight's topic is all about Black Locust with Cornell Cooperative Extension's Brett Chedzoy. So Black Locust has a timber crop. Brett. Go. Yes, Brian. Uh, so we were just talking about how it has a very dense and durable lumber. It also has a very nicely figured lumber. And any of you that have ever worked with locust, uh, it's it's there amongst my favorites in terms of color and figure. It's also a lo- it's it's a lumber that's it uh, it's it's very dense, but it machines well. It seems to dry well. It's quite stable. Maybe not our most stable wood. One of the reasons that it was spread so widely beyond its native range in the Appalachian Mountains is because apparently it had the lowest amount of shrinking and swelling when it got wet, so it made a really good wagon axle wood, and I would imagine, of course, it held up better than less hard, less dense woods as well. And and what about like a uh, a plantation? You have some numbers here I found about spacing, but what what you know we're running out of time. Only got about six minutes left. But uh, rotations and stuff. You know rotations on saw timber, on firewood, on um, hoop poles, which we don't really do as much here. Well, Otsego County does. But yeah, what, what's your uh, advice on that? Yeah, so there are. I, I should mention that there are some kind of tree planting forestry consulting companies that are relatively new in this area. Uh, Propagate Ventures would be one. Trees for Grazers is another one. They're out of Pennsylvania. Working Trees, they're specifically focused on civil pasture plantations. And they're all trying to come up with sort of these optimal planting designs for mixes that include black locust. And it's it's fun to look at it in theory on paper and I, I, thinking back to my little joke earlier about how you know I sat there in college coming up with these elaborate designs on paper. Um, I don't think that there's necessarily one right way to plant locusts in terms of the spacing or what you mix it with. One thing that I would want everybody to take away from this conversation though is that you probably want to mix locusts with at least one or two other tree species because locust does have a couple pests. They don't seem to be particularly serious pests. The locust boar is the, the more common one, and now we have a relatively newer pest that's moved up from the south called locust leaf miner, and that just started really showing up on the New York side of uh the locust range probably less than 10 years ago. And um, I think that when you plant any tree in pure blocks, you're probably creating like a magnet for pests. Mm-hmm. And if you mix it with other trees, not only does there seem to be some 
things going on there between the trees that help them sort of protect each other from serious pest outbreaks, and, and that seems to be true of those two locust pests, but you're also just hedging your bets so that if uh, the next big pest that comes along is the emerald locust borer instead of the emerald ash borer, all those locust trees you planted, they may die, but there's something else growing in with them. What about um, people are selling these posts for 6 to $12? Is that still accurate? Um, that's probably low for today. So I've had the Mennonite fence contractors here on our farm for two weeks now rebuilding some of our oldest fences that are about 20 years old. And those fences, by the way, would still be probably just fine, but I made some really fatal mistakes with the fence building, too. For one thing, uh, the, this Mennonite contractor told me years ago, he's like, you know, Locust makes a great fence post, but he said your firewood pile better be bigger than your post pile. And I kind of chuckled at the time, but he was absolutely right. So you got to be selective. You have to mm. use trees that are big enough in diameter, meaning they're probably at least uh, four to five inches, maybe six inches in diameter. You want to look for ones that don't have obvious signs of decay or rot in them or excessive bore damage. And the biggest mistake I made back then is I put the small end in the ground, um, thinking that it would be easier to drive in, but you're actually supposed to put the fat butt end of the post in the ground, and that not only gives you more heartwood, but it also is uh, it's counterintuitive, but it makes the post more firm in the mm. ground. So they're rebuilding our fences now, and the cost of treated pine posts have, have gone significantly in the last year or so. And those posts today, if uh, just the average treated pine post for wholesale quantities is costing me somewhere around $15 average when you factor in the smaller line posts with the bigger corner posts. So, I mean, there's obviously a cost on my end to go out there and harvest my own locust trees, but the, the alternative is pretty expensive. And, And we use just for this small fencing project we're doing now, we'll use several thousand fence posts. So it adds up. Sure. Yeah. What about those hoop hoop ones, man? Those are really tall. Yeah. There, you know, there's, there's, uh, we're only scratching the surface on meeting the demand that's out there for locust posts because uh, organic farms. And of course there's a lot of Mm -hmm. growth in organic dairies and organic vineyards. They can't use a treated pine post, and many people would prefer a locust post anyhow. It's just stronger. You can pound it in in our rocky soils without snapping some of the posts off, and once they're in there, they're in there for a long time. So it might be easier to to plant their own locust uh, for future uh, fence posts. In some Absolutely, and, and unlike planting a tree for a future saw timber harvest, it's really not that long of a time frame. You know, think about it. You could be growing your own posts in probably less than 15 years. Are they an easy tree to source to try and tr- try and find? Not really. I think that's one of the biggest challenges moving forward is that we just need more forest nurseries to produce locust seedlings, not just locust seedlings, all hardwood seedlings. If you 
are going to plant Norway spruce and red pine, you can probably still find abundant quantities of those seedlings. But if you want to go out and recreate a, a kind of a native woods, planting oaks and maples and hickories and all these other beautiful hardwood species, it's really tough to find those seedlings um, yeah. or at least find them in quantity. You attribute that to, like, the uh, their just bad reputation as an invasive, that they're just not stocked, they're not uh, no, propagated? No, it's, it's it's, you know, nurseries grow what they think they can sell. And I know that a lot of people contact us looking for not just locusts, but improved varieties of locusts, and there's only a handful of nurseries that I know of that are trying to grow an improved black locust, and their production is very limited. Hmm. But it's also a tree we can grow on our own, though, and, and we do have information on our Cornell Forestry Forum on how to propagate locusts from seed. If well, you can go out and find nice straight trees in your neighborhood. Brett, um, unfortunately, we're all out of time tonight. Um, thank you for coming on the show. It, it, it flew by, so. Yeah, yeah, enjoyed it, Ryan. Zane, thank you for the opportunity to share some of this information. I hope I piqued everyone's interest to yeah. maybe try some locusts. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you, Brett. Have a good night. Thank you. Take care. All right. If you missed the show, that was uh, Brett Chedzoy from Cornell Cooperative Extension talking about uh, black locust. See you next week. We'll talk to the Forest Services, uh, Virginia McDaniel, about fire, more fire. All right, take care. Bye. And the bottle was his friend, and the old man stumbled in from the forest. Up a dark and dingy staircase, the old man made his way. His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear Upon his mantle shining the face of one so dear Who'd loved him in the springtime of a long-forgotten year When the wildflowers did bloom in the forest She touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name and then he heard the joyful sound of children at their games In an old house on a hillside in some forgotten town Where the river 